Welcome to I Spit on Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where I put down my bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are back pitting an original against its remake. We will be looking at Les Diaboliques from 1955 and its remake, Diabolique from 1996. How will they compare? Which one will come out on top? Let's find out. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. The guy's watching us. He's alive. He's dead. And I'm not sorry. And neither are you if you're really honest with yourself. Killing him is a good thing. Like planting a tree. So this actually was a listener request. We had a wonderful gentleman email us through our website uh, suggesting we do this original and versus remake. So that's why we're doing this today. So as you guys know, with the way our original versus remake uh, platform works, usually Kelly and I will say our likes and dislikes of the films and how we saw these films before. But we're doing it differently. We like to look at some themes in these films, the original and the remake, and how they portray them better. And then we get into a more of our discussion about the films, our likes and dislikes, and which one we like the best. So to start us off in this discussion, we're going to talk about the 1955 film that came from France that was directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau. Aujourd'hui ou jamais. Et tu es sûr que ça laisse pas de traces. Et le scandale Tu imagines le scandale Ça ne peut finir que d'une façon. Sans des monstres, Dieu n'aime pas les monstres. Oh, j'ai la tête qui éclate, moi. Je vis une histoire de fou. Ce n'est pas une histoire de fou, c'est une histoire diabolique. Qui est là Diabolique. Un costume d'homme. Diabolique. Une malle en osier. Diabolique. Une piscine. Qui l'a enfoncé sous l'eau context about France in the 1950s, particularly in regards to homophobia, it was a really interesting time because 
in France and particularly in Europe in the 1920s and the early 30s, it was a time of kind of carefree attitudes toward homosexuality. You had the World League of Sexual Reform, founded by a sexologist in 1928, who was advocating and going after European nations to have a more, in quote, rational attitude towards sexual abnormal persons, including homosexuals, men and women. So kind of more of a carefree attitude. It was still considered a social taboo to be homosexual in France, but it wasn't criminalized. You weren't going to be able to go to jail for it. But it wasn't until the rise of fascism in the later 1930s and the 40s that we would see all this change. Homosexuality became a focus of debate. Men who were often associated with feminine traits were seen as embodying a nation's decline. They were inverts. They were considered symbols of treason and moral decline. And this was particularly large in Germany and the rise of the Nazi regime as they started rounding up homosexuals for execution camps. And then we eventually would see this continue on under Vichy regime when France was occupied by the Germans in the late 1940s. But for lesbians during this time, it was less hectic for them. So during this like interwar period of criminalizing homosexuality, that was predominantly focused on men. Why? I don't know. Patriarchy. But ways of expressing disapproval of female homosexuality was more subtle and less common, especially as a result of the gender hierarchy, where it was deemed that women, if they were lesbians, would cause less harm to the nation and to patriarchy. So the greater threat, the greatest threat were gay men. Under German-occupied France, known as the Vichy regime, Marshal Patin approved a new French law on August 6th in 1942, criminalizing homosexuality once again. Homosexuality hadn't been criminalized since before the time of the French Revolution. So from the French Revolution to 1942, you you weren't going to be thrown in jail for being a homosexual. It would just be seen as a social taboo. However, by reintegrating these criminalizations, it was seen as an attempt to regenerate the nation from what they believed had been a moral decline, that homosexuality was causing a moral decline to France, and that's why the nation wasn't doing so well. So homosexuals became the focus of arrest, repressing and correcting homosexual behavior. And then one of the reasons why we're bringing this up, Vichy France, um, homophobia in France in the 1940s, 50s, is we want to talk about how it relates to the film uh, Débalique from 1955, because particularly the director, Henri Georges Clouseau had some controversy around him as as a figure because he had secured some jobs under German-occupied France in the Vichy regime, which had very strong anti-homosexual laws. And so after France was liberated, he was tried for collaboration with the Germans, and he was suspended for two years for making any directorial activities due to his supposedly anti-French and fascist sympathies, which is often kind of sometimes connected to the film in itself, because people can see, you see lines of homophobia being kind of sprinkled throughout the film, even though a lot of people say that that's nef- doesn't, is not the case. But it does impact how homophobia was still being seen and continued on after the war period. And yes, this post-war period was very homophobic. And again, anti-gay legislation. Paris police has been cracking down on homosexuality from 1949 and on. Anti-gay laws, like everything over Europe was a bit of a mess, definitely still in France. It was not a happy place to be a gay man or a lesbian. Post-war homosexuals, so you they went from being criminals 
and their love and sexuality being criminalized to mental health patients, actually, especially with the development of electroshock therapies and, quote, voluntary castration. So this was not a happy time. And like Jess said, it's very relevant to our discussion of Les Diaboliques because Les Diaboliques was actually based off of a novel entitled, I'm not going to say the French name, but it's, it translates it to She Who Was No More. And it is said that there is a lot of lesbian subtext in the movie, but in the novel, I've actually read two things, Jess. I don't know if you were able to confirm this like concretely, but I read that in the novel, the women were actually lovers. Yes, that is correct. That is actually written that the two women are lovers who... That yeah, I don't want to because you don't. Well, no, we're gonna spoil the the for people. But like, it's the two women who are lovers who end up deceiving yes. the husband, and they are the ones who who come together, get the money, and they live off happily ever yeah. after. Yeah. Yes, but I also read that what ends up happening in the book is that the mistress and the husband want to kill the wife for insurance and find out, and then go off into happiness. So I saw both premises. So I don't know if it was like truly like the OG premise, and then they switched it, but. I had a hard time. You no, know, it's the husband and the mistress try to kill the wife, but then what ends up happening is that they okay. fake her death and it ah, ends up killing the husband to okay. the wife. So it's like, it's exactly the film, okay. but just in this film, it switched around with the husband and the two women. Gotcha. Okay, there it is. There it is. Thank yeah. you. So it's really important because, yes, so the original book, the original source material had lesbian characters in them. Okay, so our director claims that he took away the lesbian plot line because it wasn't due to homophobia. It's like, that's not the reason why, quote, it was because he wanted to give his wife a larger role. Maybe, maybe not with what you said, Jess, and his connection. And you can't, in that time, I'm sure you can't help but be influenced with the societal pressures and the world that you live in. Maybe he had he didn't realize maybe he had some internalized homophobia. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there's historical context here that we have to put into context of the movie. But even subconsciously, right? He could be subconsciously putting that in and like, hey, maybe my film won't be as successful mm-hmm. if I have lesbian characters. But as we know, homosexuality and homophobia was like rampant in France during this time. So maybe he just played it safe. And which is most films and directors of that time period were doing. And we we know historically from like the 40s, the 50s and the 60s, homosexuality was always considered subtext. Like it couldn't be overt in it unless you were going to be a transgressive film that no one was yeah. going to see. Whereas yeah. Clouseau, he was actually considered the French Hitchcock. He was mm-hmm. the director who was able to take films and take classic French literature and then he would make these beautiful film films in it and stuff like that and there's a, just a lot of controversy around him because of mm-hmm. he was such a successful director in his time but because of his collaboration with the Germans working mm-hmm. under them and making films mm-hmm. that were kind of seen as uh, anti-resistance propaganda it really influenced where he went with this film. So it wouldn't so it makes sense that there would be some underlying homophobia in a film that is also carrying in lesbian subtext. And I think we see that yeah. throughout the film, yeah. especially whenever Nicole and Christina are seen together and the way that the male characters always act towards them, right? And always make these suspicions about them and how an improper it is that they're together and stuff like that. So let's talk about our characters. Great segue. So The characters in these movies, in this movie, since we're just, we'll talk about this one, were really, really great. So Nicole, oh my goodness. 
I adore her, but her and Christina, I just have to say that I really, I will talk, I know we're going to talk about her legs later, but I really thought it was very interesting to have the wife and the mistress working together. So Nicole, she's seen as this like, quote, butch, the more masculine, masculine, powerful woman, her, her short haircut, and all of this is off and often in contrast in comparison to Christina as a character. She commands attention. She's smoking. She's drinking scotch, right? Yeah. There is this one quote from one of the one of the other the male teachers that work at the the academy. He said, I was doing 4 a.m. rounds and I heard screaming from your room. The chaste woman contemplates the dawn. I was like, are you slut shaming her? (laughs) Yeah, Um, she is. (laughs) (laughs) But she's honest. She's confident. She, I, you know, I just, I liked her a lot and she was beautiful. And that actress, um, Simone Signoret, was an actual icon, played a lot of like femme fatale characters. And she was just like so stunning, but also an icon of, you know, in our research saying that she was an icon of hyper heterosexuality, which I thought was very interesting, especially when you put her into this role that has the lesbian subtext to it. For sure. And especially knowing when researching this film was really interesting because you see this tense relationship between Nicole and Christina throughout the entirety of the film as the wife and the mistress. And I remember, yeah, when I first saw this film, I was like, oh, that's interesting. We have like a wife and mistress who are acknowledging each other and treating each other well. I was like, this is kind of like, like, at first I was like, is this like a poly thing? And then I was like, no, it's just a (laughs) dude being a total asshole and just like, (laughs) it's not proper in any way. But they have this interesting relationship with one another Mm -hmm. that, you know, they develop throughout the entirety of the film and then to learn that there was um, that though that Vera and Simone used to actually be really close friends and mm. were really close to friends uh, at the beginning of the production, but by the end of the production, they know they were no longer on speaking terms with one another. But because oh, no. of the way the director was constantly focusing on Vera as a character, right. like as the actress, right. like because it's his wife, exactly his wife. Yeah. Like, he wanted to make the wife the role of the wife a bigger film. That's why he changed the whole story, gave her a bigger role, yeah. and then you constantly see how Simone is constantly cut out of the scenes or like emphasized mm. and see that how that relationship deteriorated like as well as in the film and, and part of me was like was yeah. wondering like I wonder if you could see some of that as they're acting with one another especially you know as the relationship kind of starts to crumble at the end of this film. I don't know if I really caught on to that but that's really interesting kind of history around it because they do have a really interesting relationship and again Christina has like this contrast to Nicole who's like She's a religious, religious woman. She's very like timid and meek and fragile, but she's also like this alt, this, she's kind of this icon of ultra femininity and she's very different. Opposite ends of the spectrum, I really feel like. But that's what I also think was very interesting because third character here, Michelle, the, the husband who is, oh man, I remember texting Jess. I'm like, well, the husband's a dick. (laughs) When I was watching this, he calls her a ruin. He commands her to eat when she doesn't want to. He abuses her. He rapes her. It's off screen. It's implied. It's from the 50s. But that's exactly what happened in that scene. And he says he wants her to die 
so that him and Nicole can have the school together. And it was like just all around very awful. And there's this one quote too that I pulled from the movie because it was just, he was such a god awful character. So Michelle says to Christina, stop looking at me with your insane eyes. I was like, oh my God. Like he's all around super awful, which also makes me kind of wonder why Nicole is so drawn to him. Like both of these women know that he is not a good person. He's not a good man. He's not a good partner. Obviously not a good husband Mm -hmm. he's cheating but he's also just kind of a trash person but they still kind of i mean they kind of bond over this like misery they bond over their abuse like it's like obviously nicole is not treated well either because and and we see in this movie that when i think when when we first meet her she's wearing the sunglasses because he has hit her so she's trying to hide her black eye that's interesting too because i remember thinking first thinking that when i first watched it i'm like okay so he's also abusing the mistress as well but then when we know at the end spoiler she's in on it yeah. with the murder and that's the one one of the things I don't appreciate about this film is how she changes gears all of a sudden then it makes you wonder I'm like when the entire time was that all just fake right. as well too like did, did actually her and uh, Michael actually have a good relationship and this is she was maybe like a match to him but I really highly doubt it because I feel yeah. like there was a suggestion in the film that he was having other affairs yeah. Throughout it, but I really think what's interesting about this film is that one of the things that's doing is that we don't necessarily the lesbian the relationship between Christina and Nicole is not demonized. Even though at times we see yeah. characters have suspicions about their relationship and how they have yeah. they disapprove of like the wife consoling the mistress consoling the wife or that they're always yeah. seen together. It's not demonized. Michael yes. is demonized. We are right from the get-go, like you were saying. He is the patriarchy and he is the monster. And this is what Nicole and Christina ha- are up against when it comes to having to deal with him and his, and plotting his murder. And, and like you said, like he treats Christina like ter- terribly the whole time. And- that people find in this film being aligned with queer horror is that this relationship between Christina and Nicole is not necessarily defined. Like, as viewers, we, and knowing the context and maybe reading into the film more, we could read a bit as, like, this is a, a lesbian relationship. It's not explicit throughout the entirety of the film, but we know that their relationship already lives outside of the status quo of social norms. Like, they oppose this binary because as a wife and mistress and possible lovers and possible and definitely murder conspiracies, it makes yeah. it queer because it's not normal. This relationship is not normal. They may not necessarily be physically involved with one another, but mentally and emotionally they're involved with one another and that's not considered normal. That's outside of the heteronormative world of seeing women developing relationships with other women that is in a pop position to men. And to throw their quote, because there's there's definitely some really great resources out there and really great, you know, insightful pieces. This really just really, really stood out to me um, because like you said, Jess, it's their relationship is almost invisible or at least it's so it's very subtextual. You see the care and concern yeah. that Nicole has for Christina, which I really liked to see because she again, I love Nicole so much yeah. um, in, in a lot of ways. I relate to her a lot. 
but she like seems so like tough and hardened. But then she, you do see some vulnerabilities. You do see her showing some concern for Christina, who isn't well, like um, physically unwell. She has a heart condition, which unfortunately gets her in the end, but she isn't well. She's just like, totally taken advantage of by this terrible husband of hers. Anyway, so it's just a really interesting relationship to see that. But this quote um, in our research that really I enjoyed, because again, yes, the end of the movie does show that, well, psych, Nicole and Michelle was, uh, they were in on it the whole time. So their plan, quote, worked and Christina dies at the end. So then Nicole and the husband can, you know, in theory, run away and be happy together. But... They don't make it that far. (laughs) The cops come. So really, they don't get to live happily ever after. So, you know, jokes on them. But it almost would make you feel like something failed here. And so a quote from the research that I really liked a lot, which I thought was really interesting. It says, when Michelle comes back to life, the implication seems to be that the experiment in repressed patriarchy has failed, except that Nicole and Michelle are immediately shipped off to prison and Christina's ghost haunts the edge of the screen like the spectrum of queerness itself. The absence of a tidy ending to Lady Abelique suggests that repression in any form is the real horror. I love that you bring that up because that was something I wanted to discuss was how in suppressing the actual lesbian origin of this original story, you're drawing attention and to suppression itself and how the patriarchy suppresses, you know, women, suppresses queers in all of its attempts to make itself more powerful and more overbearing and take more control of the scene, right? Because in the end, like, Nicole, like, you want to have sympathy for Nicole. Like, you know, I remember when I finished it the very first time, because this is my second time around watching, I was, like, frustrated. I was like, oh, Nicole, why? I was rooting for you the whole time. Like, why would you, like, <laughs> be in league with with, Mika- with my- yeah. Mikael at the time? But then the same way, too, I'm saying, I'm like, because he still holds control of her. She's a woman in the 1950s France. She has no means. Like, she's a, t- she's a school teacher who's being, being paid very unwell. He's a rich man. Of course he's going to, like, buy her as a possession and end up suppressing her because like imagine what that relationship would have been like between Nicole and Michael if they did run away and to dig it off or something like that he would have done the same thing to her that he did to Christina an abuser never changes his stripes he will always yeah, do the same thing exactly. and he will repress her right the whole time and he even tried to repress that relationship between Christina and Nicole because they were becoming allies and they were being able to protect one another so yeah I really love that you bring that up about that whole idea of like this film is like this concept of repression and how we're constantly being repressed and that queer narrative is constantly being repressed in subservice of the patriarchy and I have to this really stood out to me but I have to bring up the title of the book again she who was no more very poignant Talking about both of these female characters. She who was no more, Christina, actually dies, but has been repressed and suppressed and forced into a very subordinate position in their marriage, especially, again, just being married in France in the 50s. Post-war women were like, hey, remember, you got to get back into the domestic sphere. How dare you have a job? No, don't have jobs anymore. Don't have autonomy and independence. That's very scary. No, go back into the kitchen. So, you know, she who was no more has many levels. We also have Nicole, who was, again, if she... If either one of these women were lesbians at the time, we have to, again, we have to suppress that. Nicole isn't married. She's an unmarried woman working at this job, seemingly quite independent, doing her own thing. She has her job. She has her life. She has a rental house. 
Like she's a land, like she owns property, yes. right? That's unheard yeah, of exa- for women Yes, too. that's right. Oh, wow. She's very subversive. She's a very <laughs> strong, very interesting, independent woman. So, but if she was lesbian, she'd have to, again, repress that. I feel like this relationship with Michelle is just situational. It was kind of almost like a means to an end. Like if, if Nicole is really the femme fatale that we think that she is, maybe if she would have been successful, she would have taken that money and left uh, Michael herself. Yeah, exactly. We don't know. We don't see that aspect of the movie. So I just thought that the title was very important of the book. And then so we come to like, so again, why suppress the queerness of this original novel, the original story? Like you said, Jess, queerness disrupts equilibrium, the status quo. And this movie completely refuses to do that. I mean, the original title, Lady Diabolique, The Devils, The Devilish, right? And we're supposed to think it's the women but it's not. Yeah. It's him. Like you said, I mean, there's going to be a little bit of Nicole there because she kind of. Yeah, yeah, she was involved. That was all a ruse. He didn't actually die. But you go into it thinking that it's going to be this woman. But like, even though that ending is what that ending is, I think both of these women want to destroy the agent of patriarchy, which is Michelle. He's abusive dominating power. And again, even with that ending, I mean, Nicole does betray Christina leading to again, that ending that I think is very disappointing because perhaps she, maybe she wasn't queer after all, maybe, maybe not, or performative heterosexuality. Again, internalized misogyny, internalized homophobia, 1950s France. Again, we have to put that context into it. So there's, there's layers there to, to these really interesting characters, I think. Yeah. I definitely would agree. So you brought up the this aspect of the femme fatale, which is a very interesting type of character. And the actress that played, like I said, the actress that plays Nicole in this had played many roles in the 40s, 50s, 60s-ish, where she was a femme fatale. So what is a femme fatale? In French, it's a French movie, uh, it means disastrous or deadly woman. So she is the seductress who destroys men. She is the myth of the dangers of an uncontrolled female sexuality. She's sinful because she desires to have sex without motherhood or creating children. She rejects the domestic and the conventional. She's villainous and also shows men's anxiety of female power and their destruction or the removal of power from a weaker being. So the femme fatale is a really interesting character that you saw a lot in film noir of the 40s and 50s. And we do see her a little bit here and we'll definitely, I think, see her in the remake. Oh, for sure. Like the femme fatale became really popular after World War II. Um, and like Kelly said, the emergence of the film noir because there was a change in generals. You know, during the war, women were asked to come out of the home to get into the workplace to help the war effort. So of course, women did that. And what happened? opportunity happened for women. Women started to realize that they can work for themselves, have their own money, and live their own life. So they no longer had to stay home and raise their children. Thus, they were, didn't have to be owned by men because if they lived in the house, that was the male's property and this was their home. And bearing their children was to make sure that the ultimate form of male destruction could not happen, which is carrying on their legacy. So World War II changed this for women and the war effort changed this for women. So when the war ended and men came back home from the war, they tried to force women back into the home and women resisted. And this is where Kelly says the idea of the femme fatale comes from is this idea of women having gained too much power, independence and rejecting motherhood. This new woman. She is someone who is materialistic. She's working. She's aging. She's an adulteress, but she's new. 
and men fear this. It's like male castration for them because she is aware of her sexuality and she knows how to use that as a weapon against men. She is cold and she's distanced and she knows how to drive. She has the drive to destroy anyone who would stand in her way of her own self-achievement. And I think Nicole, as a character, really portrays the femme fatale really well because, like you said, while she... So she very much subverts the traditional role as uh, she's a teacher who working in a male boarding school. She mm-hmm. owns property. She wears, while she she wears very striking fashion, like, like fashionable clothing, like she's very feminine, but like power suits in a way like uh, from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. But at the same time too, you see that she's also knitting. She's also able to take care of Christina, but she has like short hair, very strong jawline. And like you said, mm-hmm. a masculine power. She's like her, I don't, I, I almost want to say like her bark would be worse than her bite, but I almost feel like it'd be both mm-hmm. with Nicole. Like, <laughs> <laughs> she's a dominant yes. character every yeah. time on the screen. Even with other male characters on the screen with her, she is dominant. She is able to go toe to toe with Michelle in this film. Like, you yeah. when the way he treats Christina, she's like, that's disgusting, and she calls him out. Yeah. Like, she yeah, is the classic femme fatale. So, yeah, back to actress that plays Nicole Simone Signoret, played multiple femme fatale, and essentially, femme fatale essentially want to assert their subjectivity in a patriarchal world. That's what they do. And even though, again, her character does betray a woman in the this movie she did so willingly and on her own terms at least as much as we can see from from the movie and again i think perhaps to her own internalized homophobia but i do think you see a difference in this character in the remake oh very very interesting portrayal of nicole in in the remake very different even more layered very interesting um but she was she was her own woman even if she made some mistakes she owned all of these mistakes and she did what she needed to do right and that's the the essence of a femme fatale is that you do what you need to do for yourself and protect yourself and what you want out of life and again very relatable love the femme fatale (laughs) yeah and it's interesting because often the femme fatale and we'll talk about this also in the 90s but they're often associated with violence and queerness it's often they go hand Mm. in hand that the femme fatale is often either uh, sexually fluid, she's either bisexual or lesbian, and she's able to sleep with men, you know, the complications, and oftenly associated with some sort of violence towards men. You know, they're using mm-hmm. their sexuality as a weapon to gain control or to avenge offenses that have been done against other women, but this was a way in which Hollywood could kind of subvert the the Hays Code, right? Like, the Hays Code enforced all these restrictions upon women and prohibited overt sexuality, so you had to force it then to become subtext. And so what does the film noir do? It rises intelligent and powerful female protagonists into this role of the femme fatale, which is often linked with sex and violence, which then Mm -hmm. you're allowed to be able to play more with that, with Mm -hmm. homosexuality and bring in that subtext so that's why we often like you know not all femme fatales have to be queer but historically majority of them are because this was just the only way in which you could address these queer narratives in cinema unfortunately though they're often punished they're often the ones who they end up being the victim of the male of male spectators and also male violence at the end like they end up or they have to be churned or reformed in some way Mm -hmm. great point so we have a really interesting guest spot for you guys and i want to introduce you all to henry corgan who is a best-selling author husband father and bisexual creative who loves to write every 
kind of story. His debut horror novel, A Man in Pieces, won the silver medal for Literary Titan and went on to be number one in the U.S. horror fiction section on Amazon. Always an avid reader, Henry started writing poetry in middle school, but it wasn't until he started writing erotica in high school that he really learned the mechanics of writing. What started out as private stories and love letters soon became publications and anthologies. As a member of the LGBTQ plus community and an obsessive, overly anxious person living with depression, he has dedicated himself to providing readers with diverse, flawed characters that he had desperately needed when he was growing up. Above all, he wants to be known for not staying where he's been put. To always surprise people, especially himself, because that's what makes it fun. The feeling that even he doesn't know what's going to do next. And he has some thoughts about these two films. Hey everyone, my name is Henry Corrigan, and I want to start by saying thank you to Kelly and Jess for this opportunity. I really can't thank you both enough. This is huge for me. Today, we're going to be talking about Diabolique, both the 1955 original and the 96 Hollywood remake. Both versions of the film keep to the same basic storyline. We have two women who are trapped in an abusive relationship with the same man. On the one side, we have the wife who is wealthy but sheltered. She grew up in a convent. She has a weak heart. On the other side, we have the mistress, who is much more worldly and brings more of the classic va-va-voom to the character, if you will. Now, there's a heavy level of sin, which hangs over the entire storyline. The sin of divorce, the sin of murder. But the most hypocritical part about all of this is that the heaviest wages of sin are not levied against their abuser, the cold, calculating, violent husband, but against the women themselves and the relationship that blossoms between them. Very early in both versions of the film, there's a secondary character who says that it's wrong for two women to be so close, especially when they both know that they're sleeping with the same man. And this speaks to the real legacy of Diabolique. It's a legacy of toxic masculinity. The idea that even as these women are suffering, their attempts to end their suffering are more wrong than the abuse that they deal with on a daily basis. Toxic masculinity is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I wrote uh, my debut novel, A Man in Pieces, partially based off of it. One of my central characters, Tom, is very much like the husband in that he is abusive, he's manipulative, he is toxic to everyone around him on every level. And also, much like the husband in Diabolique, he doesn't realize until far too late in the game how destructive and costly this behavior truly is. Toxic masculinity is not only written into my novel, A Man in Pieces, it's not only written into our society, unfortunately, but it's written into every single frame of Diabolique. The 96 Hollywood remake ups the sex and violence. It makes the relationship between the two women much more salacious because, well, that's unfortunately just what you did in the 90s. But even the 1955 original still has its problems. There's a scene late in the film when the wife, who again suffers from a weak heart, is in the midst of having a heart attack. This poor woman is bent over double. She is groaning in pain. It's meant to be dramatic. It's meant to be gut-wrenching. And it is. But at the same time, the cinematography of the film is constructed in such a way that the audience is still treated to a view right down the front of this woman's nightgown. 
Even as this poor woman is suffering, she is still pandering to the men around her. And that is the most basic element of toxic masculinity, the idea that a man of a, of a man looking at a woman and saying, darling, I can't do this without you. I can't stop thinking about you. And that's exactly why I'm going to punish you because I can't allow you to have that kind of control over me. Toxic masculinity, if anyone is looking for a masterclass in one cinematography and two into the idea of toxic masculinity, you really can't get better than Diabolique, the original, which is my personal favorite. Even the 96 Hollywood remake has Chaz Palminteri, it has Sharon Stone. I'd not highly recommend it as well. So if anyone is looking for my highly suggest that they seek that out and if you'll pardon a shameless plug i will also suggest to listeners that they check out my novel a man in pieces if they're looking for a true to life horror story about the trials of toxic masculinity and the american dream itself a man in pieces is available on Amazon as an ebook or as a paperback. It's available pretty much anywhere books are sold. And I want to once again thank Kelly and Jess for this opportunity. I've had a blast being here and I hope everyone really enjoys Diabolique. Thank you, but everyone to having me here. Bye. Thank you so much for that insightful input on both of these two films. So moving on to our remake from 1996, Diabolique. I didn't have to get married to have lousy sex. No, I did. Don't you run away from me! I'm alive. No, you're dead, this is heaven, and I'm the Virgin Mary. What happened to your eyes? Your husband was in one of his moods again. It's not right, wife and mistress being so chummy, especially since she knows. We're never gonna be free until he's dead. Killing him is a good thing. Like planting a tree. One good drink gotta do it. Cheers. Well, you can take the girl out of the convent. Now we can get on with our evening. He'll never hurt us again. What are you so jumpy about? So we're going to talk about, we're going to compare and contrast the themes from the original homophobia. What is this like in the 90s? Lesbianism is a subtext. Is it text in the remake? What would, you know, essentially what was life like in the 90s when this movie came out? Because this was a very, very different time period. I mean, that seems obvious, but... Really, it really was. (laughs) 
for for this movie to make a very different movie. For sure. And I think it was really interesting watching this film, knowing both you and I as, you know, children of the 80s slash 90s growing up during this time. So doing some of this research and homophobia in the 90s and then watching this film, it really took me back, like kind of experiencing, but just remembering a lot of things that were happening. So... Homophobia in the 90s was rampant, as as it always is and still ha- and still is. But during yeah, the 90s, sadly. this was a time when gay rights really d- began to really be pushed to the political forefront because of decades of, of unequal treatment and violence. During the time, homophobia came in the form of public opposition of the homosexual lifestyle and that people who were considered gay were degenerates, weak, and morally sick. And this was also around the time when there was a lot of comparisons of homosexuality to pathology that needed like a treatment. So once again, Kelly was saying, mental illness that once again you are if you're homosexual you're considered mentally ill there's something wrong with you conversion therapy you could be cured you could be cured yes. yeah exactly yes. conversion therapies and they were coming this was also a time where there were a lot of hate crimes coming out the tragic case of Matthew Shepard and what happened to him and it wasn't until 2009 that we would actually have federal hate crimes legislation that would be put in place and it was because of the activities of the 90s of all the political things that were coming out to fight against what was happening to to homosexuals in the 1990s. We had governmental officials, you have ambassadors, you have senators, people with massive platforms sadly still kind of happening, but stating that homosexuality, like you said, it's immoral as these senators are having affairs. Mm. You know, who's immoral, really? But we have, I mean, it was definitely a, I want to say like a less tumultuous time, but it was a very different kind of tumultuous time. But in our movie, I mean, they're still not overtly or explicitly lesbians or explicitly lovers. So it still wasn't put out there, which is still very different from the book, like we talked about. But it still was not a great time. Still not a great time to be gay in the 90s. There was, you know... Some like fun, flashy shows and movies showing the relationships and some of our, you know, some, yeah, some relationships, some sexuality and everything, though, you know, very often filtered with a male gaze, Hmm. um, unfortunately. But, you know, in 1993, they had Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military where you could be gay and join the military, but you could not act romantic or sexually, or you would be removed. 1996, they had the Defense of Marriage Act in the States, uh, where marriage was defined as one man and one woman. That wasn't that long ago, folks. So it still wasn't really a wonderful place to be gay. America is improving. In my mind, I'd say very slowly, but apparently there are statistics that say that things actually have been dramatically increasing or increasing exponentially for people's, quote, acceptance and, quote, tolerance of homosexuals in their country. But frankly, the other day, somebody just walked into a gay bar and killed people. There's still a long ways to go with regards to accepting the variety of genders and variety of sexual orientations in America. Hate continues to spread. And if it's spreading through prominent figures that again have platforms, it just spreads like a disease. I mean, in the 90s really was like the internet was just starting out. So we really relied upon the news. Yeah. Media, 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 shows, like Jerry Springer, like all that like random like pop culture shit of the 90s, like trash TV, trashy talk shows. I love Jerry Springer. (laughs) Watch that a lot. But I mean, it was not a great sounding board for acceptance, right? They just had all kinds. Well, the representation was very poor, right? Like we were still like, there it is. Yes. you know, yeah. queer representation in the media was not great. We had, you know, no. still a lot of 
battles we had to make to being like, not all homosexuals are like this. Not all transgendered men or women are like this. Or like, this is something that you are like putting out in the media that that's not necessarily true. And this is why something that Kelly and I discovered back when we did our Megan is Missing episode is the whole idea of intention behind a film. And when you have a writer and director going in and doing a film and what they are intending to put out there to the audience. And so one of the things I found really interesting when researching the, the 1996 film of Diabolique was that the director, Jeremy S. Chechnik, when he went into here as a Canadian director, he wanted to create a feminist story and use as much as original source material as possible and he worked with queer writer Don Ruse in writing the screenplay for the film who was also the writer for the other for a film another really popular film in the 90s single white female and to really bring out a lot of that kind of like the queer like kind of that queer idea and the queer narrative into this film and I think like honestly when I watched this film I was I wasn't disappointed by the representation like it wasn't perfect but it wasn't terrible and I've, I've seen other 90s yes. films in the yeah. 90s with like queer characters yeah. and you're like ooh that's not a good representation but this one, yeah. I was okay with yeah. because I can also understand there's that in- ambiguity of to the Nicole and Maya instead of Christina's relationship throughout this film. Yeah, I do have a like a movie quote because I feel like homophobia still prevalent, but people are more open about it in the 90s. Yeah, more open about it. I mean, they would have been like hush hush talking over coffee in people's kitchens in the 50s. Now we're going to be more open and probably obnoxious about it. So in the movie, they're like PR people yes. that do the promotional videos for the school. It was like 20 bucks that they killed them. Dykes. And I was like, oh, I see. There's different homophobia here. We're more open about it in the 90s, which is maybe why their relationship in the 90s, their lesbian relationship, if that is a thing that's there, I feel like in this one, it really is. Maybe that's why their, their relationship still has to remain hidden or hinted at. Oh, for sure. Because we're surrounded by homophobic fuckers. Just gonna say, like, lesbianism it wasn't against the law, but still not, like, considered, quote, normal. And again, they already weren't, quote, normal because they were the mistress and the wife hanging out together, being close together, taking care, literally taking care of each other, showing care, affection, and concern for one another. Again, coming back to Nicole's character. So yes, just more overt homophobia. And now that you bring that up, it reminds me of like growing up with like my girlfriends and stuff like that. And if you had like really close knit group of girls and stuff like that, guys would often tease girl women about, or girls about having close friendships and be like, oh, are you guys like queer together? Are you guys like dykes? Like I remember, before I even came out as queer I remember being called a dyke by a couple uh people just because of like close friendship or something like that yeah but it's like you're very it's very right homophobia is more overt in this film and it's and it's like I feel like Nicole and Maya had to keep it even more of a secret because of the overtness because of the possibility that they could be attacked they could be injured and Fetishize. That was another big thing in yes. the 90s was yeah. the male gaze when it came to queer films um, or films that had like queer subtext in it or text. It was yeah. fetishized. Men would fetishize it always. I will never forget like how like, ooh, like if you guys are together, you're going to kiss and stuff like that. Like there's that image, right? And, and I'm glad you started to bring up some of your own personal experience. I wondered like because you grew up in the 90s with all of this media and as a queer woman, like do you have anything else to add with regards to like homophobia in the 90s like I know you kind of just said a couple of like personal experiences but anything else that you would notice I know you said like this movie really brought you back 
to that time. So is there anything else that you would add with regards to that as a more like personal experience? I just remember always being afraid of being found out. Right. Or being like, yeah, once you're found out that exactly like because also I came from a religious family, it was like, oh, like it was even like kind of like even bigger deal. But then it's also like once you found out, like, then are your friends going to treat you differently? Right. Because you want to have close relationships with like your female friends and stuff like that. You may not necessarily have an, uh, an attraction to them in any way, but then all of a sudden everyone just assumes that like, oh, my God, you may want to sleep with me. And it's like, mm, that's not the case. Right. And then just teenage boys are terrible and when they get something in their mind and they think this is cool and stuff like that and like just you know even I remember dressing if I dress too queer which is like I don't know wearing jeans and a t-shirt apparently that gets you called a dyke often so I had a lot of issues around you know my feminine imagery and stuff like that because I wanted to embrace my queer identity but also didn't want to be like assault like slurred on or something that in the street also and it's also just you're nervous walking around with your you know with your girlfriend and wanting to hold their hand in public like it just adds this extra pressure of fear all around you that you can't really truly be yourself and so watching this film and seeing like this kind of relationship develop between Nicole and and Maya it's like and they're still having to try and have to keep it secret because they just don't know how people are going to react to them it was very reminiscent So going back to our wonderful femme fatales, we met them, we talked about them from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. 60s, they kind of fell off the mark a little bit. 70s, well, that was the era of lesbian vampires and sexploitation. We kind of went the opposite of good and balanced representation or any kind of good representation of lesbians or bisexual women. So the femme fatale definitely has gone through some changes become less powerful of a figure, a bit more passive, maybe a victim of abuse. 70s, she's kind of disappearing. 80s and 90s, though, she's coming back with full force. They're successful. They're powerful, financially successful, not even like just career success. They're Again, they're intimidating. They're kind of dominant, but they're sophisticated. They're high class, kind of alluring and dangerous. She didn't need a man for violence. She did it herself. And the 90s absolutely was a massive time for the erotic thrillers and our femme fatale. Big time. And I definitely got those vibes from this film too. Like as it started (laughs) opening up and the first scene is Isabel as Maya. Full nudity. And I was like, well, okay. We are definitely on this, uh, this trend with this, uh, the erotic thriller, which was, like you said, very popular at the time with Basic Instinct, Bound, yeah. you know, Sharon Stone. She is was known yes. as the femme fatale icon of yeah. the 90s. She's our Simone Signoret, right? Of our, of the 90s. Short blonde hair. There's, there's, I'm sure that casting was not, you know, on accident. So Basic Instinct. I'm glad you brought up Basic Instinct. So femme fatale, erotic thrillers, Basic Instinct saw a backlash from the LGBTQIA plus community due to even more unfortunate and tolerable representation of lesbian or bisexual women being psychotic murderers. Great. 
You know, it's not, they may be fun movies to watch, but people are just getting tired of this kind of, again, going back to the femme fatales are always linked to kind of sex and violence. The queerness that is more subtextual in the 50s. Now we're back into the 90s where things, well, in Basic Instinct, that was, she was overtly bisexual. It was out there. That was part of the movie. Mm-hmm. But again, our femme fatales are even more overtly or explicitly at least sexually fluid, but then we're murderers, we're mentally ill, you know, that's kind of what was happening around that time. Lesbians and bisexual women were psychotic in mainstream cinema. And I mean, I feel like in Diabolique, we do see a little bit less of that. Yeah, we do. It wasn't like bad. It wasn't gone to like the psychotic. We understand why these women like joined forces to to take out the husband whose name is Guy in the in the remake. So I'm glad they went that route because I mean, and Sharon Stone is in this remake as well. It really could have gone in a very different direction. And I'm glad that you brought that up about the writers and the director, because when I first started looking at these movies and doing the research, I was like, they're both written and directed by men. There's maybe that's why that's, you know, it's not going to be overtly or explicitly lesbians. There's going to be more, more male gazy, definitely like more in the Diabolique remake, but it's interesting. I'm glad that you brought that up because it kind of makes me think about the movie a little bit differently. Yeah, the director had that intention of being like, he wanted it to be a feminist film, and particularly a film about women saying enough is enough when it comes to being the subject of abuse by their male partners and also the system. Because, interesting enough, and for the research in the film, the director was really struggling. Like, he really appreciated Sharon Stone as an actress, but she was really struggling with the producers of the time of the film. Like, they were really trying to, like, screw her over. And once and it's like that example of women fighting against. Uh, sexist oppression in the workplace, in their careers. Mm-hmm. And this that was a big thing for women in the 90s. So often, these femme fatale of the 90s, like Kelly was saying, they are career women and they're fighting against the glass ceiling. They're trying to break through yes. the glass ceiling. But the 90s, we're still having to do that in a script of, uh, what I have to say, like this, almost like this fetishization of the of the femme yeah. fatale, because they're still seeing that, whereas like, we, you know, we have these powerful women, but at the end of the day, like Kelly said, they are seen as psychotic, they are seen as sexually deviant, and they have this male protagonist hero that will somehow come around and save them, change them, reform them in some way except for one really awesome film that came out where both Kelly and I agree, this is the actual <laughs> remake of uh, De Bali or of the original of the original book. Yes. So I in our research, we were there was this really great article. It was actually a vulture article about Lady Abelique, but they had said that if Lady Abelique were made today, it would be probably more like Bound. But because this was the 1950s, audiences had to pretend these women weren't closeted lesbians. I was like, great fucking point. Also, yes, (laughs) Yes. Bound. Oh my God, the Bound of it all. It definitely would be. But we have, I mean, we do have a remake and then there's Bound, but they have very, quite similar kind of premises. And, but Bound obviously is, it's like its own beast. But that also came out in 1996, the same year that Diabolique came out, where they play, you know, they play with the quote, butch, femme, and feminine, which I feel like we do also in Diabolique. Yeah, we do. I feel like Diabolique just is kind of restrained in the fact that it's a remake and it's almost like a shot by oh, shot remake. Yeah. It's a bit restrained. I mean, it could have been more like Bound, but we have Bound. <laughs> and I'm so glad that we do. <laughs> I'm so glad that we have Bound. It is a amazing film. Love it. Holds up yeah. to this day. <laughs> yes. 
So the bound of it all. Also, now, trans women created bound. Which I, so I found that really, really interesting. It was like their first film to be able to get money to do be able to do other films, which is also great. Well, it was good. It was good. And bound also had good representation because they actually consulted with a lesbian sexologist, like someone to come in and help with the actual lesbian sex scene, which is really great too. So like, it's this wonderful film of uh, really, it's like this really great, perfect representation of what the femme fatale could be because Violet, her character is the perfect femme fatale. She plans her escape. She plans the money. She plans it all. And she gets away, which is the ending of the original book that Lady Diabolique is based off of. The lesbian lovers get yes. away. They get the money and yes, they get away. Exactly. <laughs> they live happily ever after. And that's what we want from them. <laughs> and that's what we kind of were hoping or wanting for at the yes. end with Maya and Nicole in this film, because you almost think that they're going to get that happily ever after ending. And they kind of do. But at what price? They had to, they, because we know at the end, it's the same kind of, the same kind of thing happens in this film, like Kelly said, shot by shot remake. The only, there's a couple differences and we'll talk about what's new, but the ending itself is what's really new and what really changes looking at the relationship of Nicole and Christina as you see it develop film. Like, I feel like this film on a second rewatch, knowing what you know by the end, you can read the relationship very differently. So what is new? We talked about the OG film, the themes, our remake, how it compares in contrast to the original in a variety of ways and different time frames, different eras. How does it change the movie? But what's new? Yeah, it's very similar in plot and the flow is the original. There's not a massive divergence from the source material or at least the original movie. But I still think it feels like relatively updated and modern for 1996. I mean, it's very 90s. So there's nudity, a lot more sex, a lot more blood and violence and a little bit more crude. Um, it is the 90s. So it's going to be a little excessive, I think, in in that. <laughs> crude sexual innuendos, like when he made a comment yes. to her about swallowing. I was like, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. <laughs> G is the ultimate 90s douchebag. Oh, geez. Guy definitely is. And, the, and again, the surrounding characters, the surrounding male characters in the original movie were very just like one note, not really interesting. They kind of just existed. They were all very passive bystanders. You know what I mean? I think they were all very afraid of Nicole, so they didn't really say much. Yeah. But <laughs> They were afraid of her, and I think they were also afraid of Michelle yeah. in the original movie, but definitely afraid of Nicole, because she will cut it. Yeah. She will cut you. But uh, in this, yeah, there's like victim blaming, a lot of gaslighting, manipulation, terrible things like guys saying to Mia, you shouldn't make me mad. Like, just that yeah. like really gross, abusive male. So it's going to be cruder. It's going to be more overt and it's abuse. Um, and so, I mean, it makes it a little bit more challenging to watch because that's not really great. But a lot of that stuff was also very, unfortunately, common in the 90s. It's all very, quote, acceptable to do all that stuff in film and just have it and portray it all the time. The casting. Yeah. Woo-hoo! Casting was so, so good. The So for Nicole and Mia, I think that casting was great. They played those characters really, really well. Again, I think Sharon Stone, I think they just, again, they were perfect for the roles I have to say because we talked about the clothing in the original the clothing in the remake also I think really stood out to me it was really important Nicole's outfits 
are always very bright and colorful and she's always wearing red lipstick. The 1955 movie is in black and white, so she very well could have been wearing the same types of clothing. We can only judge it really based on like cut and fit. Yeah. Whereas in the remake, I mean, she stood out. She's like a male peacock, just peacocking around with how sexy and just um, fashionable she was. But then everybody else is in like very beige, neutral earth tones, which I thought was really interesting. Our adulteress, our femme fatale is standing out amongst all of these people. Again, lots of men around her. Mm -hmm. Did you notice that Mia wears, she's generally in like pretty neutral earth tones, except for the night when they kill Guy or quote, kill Guy. She's wearing a deep, dark red dress. Oh yeah, when she- And her hair is up like very curly and actually done. Yeah. She was having a sleepover with Nicole that night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's also changing, right? Like as an individual, like we know that Mia is supposed to be this virginal. We end up finding out in this film, we end up learning more of like Mia's background, which is like she used to be a nun. So that makes sense why she has this fear of God and Christianity and all these things and these sins. she's changing as a woman because she's standing up for herself and in this relationship with Nicole you're right she's starting to Nicole is starting to rub off on Mia just as Mia was kind of starting to rub off on Nicole about having these like kind of sense of understanding of well no she started to find a sisterhood in Nicole because Nicole ended up starting experiencing that abuse with uh, with Guy but also what was also different in this film was that we find out that Guy has had an affair and his affair the woman who walks in meets her like goes and sees Nicole and Mia and says he was supposed to pay for my abortion where the fuck is he and his wife and mistress have to pay for her abortion yeah so then that ends up changing the whole narrative of the film because now Nicole realizes she's just as replaceable as Mia was knowing especially that um Mia knew about this other woman and was like oh she started seeing he started seeing her when he started seeing you so like he's been playing you both the whole time which ends up changing the ending of this film which I thought was really interesting as well when Nicole realizes that she has been experiencing the same abuse as Mia the entire time like I feel like Nicole throughout the entirety of this film was in like denial like she was almost like I'm a strong independent woman I would never be under the thumb of a man I would never be treated this way he would never but then when she sees what when she when the affair is revealed she's like oh shit he's done the same thing to me as he's done to her well fuck this guy I gotta you know stand up yeah. for myself in the end especially when Mia and I'm pretty sure it's Mia gives her the money when they're like oh the money's gone and the money ends up being in Nicole's purse and she realizes oh shit she was actually trying to get me out so yeah. I thought that was a really yeah. wonderful and nice ending because you know you get this sisterhood among sadly among women who are being abused by men in their lives and then I think one of the other things that you wanted to bring up that was also really new is the change in our detective character, because I think that was really important for this film. Yeah. Before we get into that, I do want to talk, go back to Nicole and Mia, because we're talking about potential lesbian relationship here. And that's there's lesbian subtext in the original. But in this one, I mean, again, it's still not very overt. Nicole kisses Mia on the cheek. She's much more affectionate in this as much as she can be or wants to be. She is a very kind of like slightly aloof kind Mm -hmm. of, again, I'd say, quote, hardened a little bit more 
yeah, kind of hardened. She doesn't wear her emotions on her sleeve like her, um, like Mia does, not as like, quote, emotional yeah. or easily emoting. But they're in bed together. Nicole just has a bra on. There's much more closeness and touching. And some would say in the original that there was some queer tension. There could have been. I felt a little bit definitely in that one. But there's like actual sexual tension between these two characters. And a part of me also almost thinks that Nicole, more so than Mia, she just seems, again, to show a lot more affection and concern and care for Mia than Mia does for her. They're just very different women. Yeah, for sure. But Nicole does show, like, vulnerability. I think that maybe she's in love with Mia, but she's unable to really express it, and she maybe doesn't even really understand what all of this means, but there is a closeness there that is perhaps more close than just platonic friends. And I just really liked the portrayal of them in, in in the remake. I just thought it was just a little bit more, I mean, again, not explicit, but maybe it doesn't even necessarily have to be, mm-hmm. you know? But you want to talk about sisterhood. Because again, that, again, that is, I think, a, a another overarching theme that we do really see in this remake. That kind of the the trifecta of women coming together to help each other out. I I like what you said when you said that Mia's rubbing off on Nicole, Nicole's rubbing off on them, or just kind of elevating and supporting each other. And Nicole's helping Mia have a voice because when Mia's like having doubts, she's like, no, he's dead. We killed him. Like, it's fine. We're good now. This is okay. We're safe now. And like, essentially, I almost feel like she's like, I like, I've made sure you're safe. You are safe now and protecting Mia from him. Um, But we bring in Kathy Bates as our detective Shirley Vogel instead of the man, the old retired detective in the original that's helping out. He's more than happy to help out. But we have Kathy Bates. Oh, man, Kathy Bates. I love Kathy Bates, so Shirley Vogel and Nicole's dynamic. They have like this great like tit for tat kind of like dialogue back and forth, which I thought was pretty, pretty amazing. That's great. No, and I completely agree. And I love when Kathy Bates come onto the scene because she sees, it's like she almost recognizes that there's something about Mia that is very suppressed about her or very like almost like, it's sad to say that, but you can sometimes recognize women who come out of abusive relationships or have been in abusive relationships. And I feel like Shirley sees that in Mia and she also like just generally wants to help her and she wants to help solve this mystery of whatever's going but she's like you said she she talks about her experience about being like you know when things aren't right you just change your life and stuff like that and this is what you do when she and she builds up enough evidence to realize that you know guy is a terrible like he's an abuser he is she knows that there will not be any real justice for Mia and Nicole if they were to go to court against Guy for abuse or something like that. So when they do end up murdering him and Kathy Bates' character Shirley walks in on the scene and sees it, she says, she punches uh, Mia in the face and says, self-defense, right? And you're like, it kind of, and you're like, wow. Yeah. Like she realizes yeah. that she's like, we're in this together. I witnessed what yes. happened. I now know what's been going on. So let's, and this is kind of what was kind of ha- started happening among women in the 90s was like coming together to fight against these oppressors and these abusers. And that's what, where you get, and like, so what you kind of get in the end of this film. Because I remember watching this film and being like, oh, wow, Nicole and Mia are really close. Like, she's like even closer to her than in the original film. And I was like, I'll yeah. be really sad for it to end the way yes. that it ends the original. Like, Sharon Stone's character ends up being in on the whole time. So the fact that when Mia dies, 
and Sharon's checking in on her and she's actually still alive. She pretends that she's still dead to like she pretends. Pre- yeah. yeah, and I was like, oh my god, yes. And then yes. the way it ends, I was like, yes. this is the ending I like. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Me too. Me too. So yeah, the ending is new. We get to what would be the quote original ending of the original movie, but then we it takes it a bit further. And I do, I did really, really appreciate that and was really, really happy about that. But yes, Nicole feels remorse for what her portrayal to Mia. Their relationship is kind of fucked at the end. However, she does feel remorse, which you didn't get to see in the original movie. I mean, and it's 50s movie, so things like just end, but you don't get to see any element of remorse. So you kind of then don't really feel for her as much as you would you do in this movie where they actually kill Guy at the end. Both Nicole and Mia together, hands on him, under the water. They're doing this together. Then they come out and they have that really great ending. Absolutely. And I also love that the she's been... Detective Shirley Vogel's been playing. She's on Nicorette gum. She's just playing with that cigarette. At that ending, she finally lights it. And she's just like looking at Guy's dead body in the pool. I love that. I mean, I still don't love that there is like betrayal between them. And I still really wanted, I for both of these movies, I really wanted them to be 100% in this together. But people are complicated. And I think that's what shows a lot in these movies, predominantly in this remake. But it was a really wonderful change. I was really happy to see that change. So let's get into our, you know, comparison of entertainment value, our likes, dislikes, any homage to the original or anything like that, that perhaps we haven't said yet. (laughs) The bathroom scene of either Michelle or Guy coming out. Oh, yes. That was chilling and terrifying in the original. That was a beautiful scene. Way, pulls it off way better in black and white, I have to say. Yeah, so it just looked really great. I like the premise of the movie. I just like the general idea idea of like there's this we think it's a death but then the husband character will just say that so I don't keep saying two different names but the husband character starts fucking with them I really like that a lot because it adds so much like suspense you're like what's happening is he or is he actually dead or did somebody see them and you don't know until like much later on in the movie right so I really liked that premise that like suspense that like that aspect of horror for just like both of the movies generally speaking the length of the original okay you know I'm almost always gonna say this however like even though folks it's from the 50s and it is just about two hours long I actually didn't feel the length I thought it actually like was paced quite well so I know Jess was like I'm sorry it's French and it's two hours long (laughs) I was like we'll see how it goes but I didn't actually feel the length so They did a really, really good job for, I think, crafting both of these movies as as movies. Um, I really, I I, I enjoyed them both a lot. I agree with you, and I enjoyed them both a lot as well, too. Like you said, the premise is really interesting. You get that spooky mystery element to it, which Mm -hmm. is like, who done it type thing. Yeah, Um, the noir. The noir. Thriller. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) You get that thriller. But then I also liked, I think one of the things I dislike about this film is that it is kind of one of those films that once you know the ending... It's kind of like the surprise is gone for me. You know what's going to come up at the end. And so, like, I watched this film a while ago, like, about a year ago when I first got the Criterion Collection in the original. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool, really interesting. And then when I watched it the second time around, knowing what's going to come, it changes your perspective on the film a bit. But it makes you think more about the characters more and and why they're doing that. And it's like one of the things that 
I really liked about the remake and I you know dislike about the original is that you don't get as much characterization. The original yeah. is very present in that like five day time period of what this you get little hints and pieces about these characters yeah. and their yeah. motives and stuff like that but not too much whereas in the remake for entertainment value I really liked getting to know more about the characters and understanding more of their motives as to why they're doing what they're doing that I always appreciate in those in those films but yeah like you said earlier there was like shot by shot remakes which is <laughs> like I remember being like thinking when I was watching the remake I was like oh wait, yeah this is this scene this is this scene this is yeah. so you kind of yeah. know like the beats of the film as it's yeah. coming up yeah. so I appreciate yeah. that as both a homage to the original but at the same time too though I was like kind of hoping for like a little bit of some changes in yeah. certain areas is. Yeah. yeah, I'm down for a remake. I'm not one of those people that poo-poos remakes all the time. I'm always interested to see what refreshing take somebody's going to have. Mm-hmm. If you listen to our Halloween franchise, True. Spinster versus Spinster, you know, we have a good chat about remakes and reboots and stuff like that. So so I feel like both are very much products of their time, yes, periods. Very much. Which I can respect and appreciate. I would have liked a little, like, I, I'm like you, I would have liked a little bit more of an imagination for Diabolique, the remake, but I appreciate that they're both uh, very much movies made in the 50s and movie made in the 90s. They they show their time period very excellently. I had never seen Les Diabolique before, so I was happy to, to see it. I know it's a bit more of that, like, overlooked kind of influential horror movie and film noir movie of the 50s. I'm really glad that I got a chance to see it because I think it is a pretty excellent movie. I had seen Diabolique obviously in the 90s when it came out. I would have seen that for sure, but I was really excited to revisit it because as an adult, things, you know, perspective changes and stuff like that. I mean, I can, there's a little bit of that like, girl power kind of like feeling and vibe to Diabolique which maybe is a little trite but it's not like over the top it's a little bit more like tongue in cheek it's like a little bit it's not like in your face as like some other movies are from the 90s and who doesn't love Kathy Bates like thank you for bringing her into our lives for this movie yeah I mean I feel like they're quite similar in a lot of ways different in a lot of ways but makes for a really interesting discussion. Yeah, I agree with you. All right, so then we get to the extra, maybe controversial aspect <laughs> of an original versus remake debate and discussion, but our final verdict. Which movie do we like better? The original and or remake and why, Jess? Wow, okay, so it's interesting because you're supposed to go first, but I guess apparently <laughs> I'm going to have a controversial opinion in comparison to our poll that Kelly put up later in the month, but <laughs> I actually like the remake better than I, I like the original. I like that the remake is closer to its original source material. I like that the messaging of this uh, film, this enough is enough mentality with, you know, turning against abuse in the patriarchy and men against women. I liked that it was a of his time so of course I grew up I had emotional feelings watching this film because <laughs> yeah, I could like you know yeah. as we we're discussing earlier things are kind of like oh I remember it was very reminiscent of the time but like there was really good character development it felt just very mm-hmm. more an authentic film and also what kind of changed my mind on the original film was the history of the film itself the complications mm-hmm. around the production of the film how uh, Clouseau's association with Vichy France and so like my the story in me like doesn't feel good about that I know <laughs> that we can also like direct take di- film like works away from directors and stuff like that but like the production history behind this like the fact that 
the Clouseaus had very different political views from Simone Sangret and her husband, and that was also one of the reasons why they stopped talking to each other by the end of the film. And you can just also see in the original film how much focus is put on Vera over Nicole, um, over Simone Sangret's character. So, and like knowing it was kind of almost like a vanity project for uh, Clouseau. So, it's like it has a good story, and it's like interesting. And like you said, the original has that shock factor at the end, which is supposed to inspire Alfred Hitchcock later on with Psycho. But when I put the two side aside and I want to talk about the films, I want to talk about the remake more. And that's where my okay. opinion lies on that one. I'm surprised only because like you're such a like a film buff, film person. But I love that twist ending. So for me, my final verdict for rewatchability, the remake absolutely. But overall, my favorite of the two is the original, oh. Lady Abelique. The original is a haunting, atmospheric, horror noir film, and I just respect it a lot and appreciate it a lot and thought it was quite fantastic. So I'm I'm with the original on this wow. one. Wow, this is definitely a twist is, ending because this is yeah. not, not, this is very rare that Kelly ever likes the original or something. Usually she likes the sequel or she likes yeah. the remake. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> oh, wow. That's interesting. That's cool. And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're spinsters, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or with a good book. Absolutely. With a mug of delicious hot tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more, but what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. It was really fun being able to just to take two films and explore similar themes, but see them in the different contexts of the time periods in which they were created in. And one of the things I learned by doing this research was that often homophobia and the demonization of the femme favelle derives from the fear of not only what is ambiguous, but gender inversion. This idea of, you know, when we can't have our gender or sexuality fit in a prescribed social norms of what it is to be a man or a woman, then people are feared to the point of criminalization. And it's, you know, we see in the history of France in the U.S. is all about the law policing people's behavior and especially when it's been seen as a threat to the patriarchy and the power. You know, France in the 40s and 50s, homosexuality was seen as an affront to a, na- a nation's identity and regarded as a symptom of a nation's moral decline, where in the U.S., homosexuality was seen as a moral social decline, and it was sadly seen as a, st- a threat against heteronormativity and the roles of men and women as they're supposed to play in a monogamous culture. Both of these films show us how each country of its time period regarded homosexuality as whether it's something that needed to be seen as ambiguous and considered subtext as in the film Les Diaboliques, or seen as little texts and in rebellion to counteract the violence in De- Diabolique. The archetype of the femme fatale has existed in Greco-Roman times, maybe even longer. Women who have known their strengths and have used their strengths to better themselves in their lives. They are powerful women who exist outside the home and they're free and they free themselves from the stranglehold of the patriarchy. 
The character of Nicole in both these films are classic femme fatales who are played by actresses who are known for playing femme fatales. She is a woman who is often as feminine as she is existing with masculine traits. But at the same time, too, they're all still sadly victims of the patriarchy. Abusive men like Michelle and Guy who see women as only objects and possessions that are easily disposed of. These films are really interesting because in the first film, we see legal justice being handed to Nicole and Michelle when when Christina dies and it's a tragedy it's really sad like Kelly was saying she haunts the screen later on we don't know if she's got a ghost later on who really is a victor at the end in the second film we end up seeing an illegal murder happen the moral justice dance on it both of these films ending with something to say about society and the cultures that end up fashioning it Les Diabolique the devils or devilish. It ends up being Michelle or Guy who is the devil or being devilish. Not the women as expected or would have been presumed if they were explicitly or openly lesbians. The movie from 1955 was very subversive and a very surprising one for, again, 1955. The 1990s was a wild, wild time for cinema. Lots of erotic thrillers had women full of rage and murdering people, lots of murdering of men, lots of girl power and basic feminist stance. Quote, hysterical, conniving women that were fed up with men and their bullshit. I am also fed up with their bullshit. Uh, so Jess, want to uh, neutralize someone with me? Sure. You'll always have an alibi with me. Mm, thank you. But in the end, both of these movies really stories about the duality of human beings, the good, the bad, shameful or virtuous, hidden truths or the secrets we all keep. It makes for some compelling storytelling and I highly recommend people watching both of these movies. I do want to end with a quote. Kill one man and you're a murderer. Kill millions of men and you are a conqueror. Kill them all and you are a god. That ends our episode on original versus remake, Les Diaboliques and Diabolique. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music, Robies, and also to all you listeners and remind you to follow us on our website at spinstersofhorror.com. On all of our social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for the Spinsters of Horror. As well as we have a Facebook group, the Spinsters of Horror Coven. So come join us. We're also on Letterboxd at Horror Spinsters. You can subscribe and please share our YouTube channel. Just look for Spinsters of Horror. We have our recorded mini-sodes and special presentations and whatnot there. So you can watch us instead of just listening to us. And as well, please rate review and subscribe to us on all podcasting apps, especially on iTunes. The more you rate and review us, the more we get out there to more people. So thank you for that. We have merch. Please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and consider donating to our cause. Next month is a Ty West extravaganza. It's Spinster's Choice and Jess has chosen us to cover X, a slasher we both fell in love with, and Pearl, if we get access to it, easy access to it. We'll talk sex, aging, elder horror, and so much more. But until then, remember, the future of fear is female. <laughs> <laughs>